Now, something very big's happening today, isn't it, Dominic? Yes. Sorry. Sounds a bit pathetic, but I'm going on a train today for the first time in about four months. And I know some of you have probably been having to go to your very important and life-saving jobs by train every day for the last four months, but I don't have a real job. And um, yeah, today's the first time I'm taking public transport. And that feels quite scary. Where are you going? Uh, I'm going down to Eindhoven. Oh, that's nice. You got your sandwiches packed? No, I haven't packed anything. It's quite weird, you know, thinking about the logistics of doing these things. I was very nervous when I got on the Eurostar about whether I'd remembered all the things, like my passport and a water bottle. It's, it's logistically quite intimidating getting on a train these days. I hadn't even thought about a water bottle. Oh, God, I'm so unprepared. Hydration is very important. Anyway, it's very exciting. I'm happy for you. Have you recovered from your first train journey last week? I have, although something I've discovered about being back in France again after three months trapped in England is that my stomach has changed. And I've developed an intolerance for saucisson. Gave me terrible stomach cramps. That's such a French problem. Well, it's an English problem. I'm just worried that my stomach has just stopped being French and it's now very English and it's going to start pining for like baked beans and marmite. My stomach always pines for baked beans. I think they're absolutely brilliant. And I've always like insisted that Heinz baked beans is a totally British tradition. And recently one of my American friends pointed out that actually they're American. Are they? No, I'm going to look up and actually just check out if Heinz is... Heinz baked beans were first sold at Fortnum and Mason's in London. Well, I'm just reading here on Wikipedia. Heinz was founded and is named for Henry J. Heinz, who was born in the United States to German immigrants. This very confusing. Um, somebody, food historians, let us know what the correct answer is to this. Uh, moving on to more important things. What are we talking about this week, Dominic? This week we're talking about the Hungarian billionaire and philanthropist George Soros. He's a fascinating and complicated figure. Um, He spent much of his later life giving billions of his money to open society and pro-democracy causes, making him a pretty big target of conspiracy theorists who believe he is the puppet master behind many a progressive movement. Emily Tamkin, US editor of The New Statesman, is joining us today, having written a book about George Soros in which she takes a detailed look into his motivations and explores this rather awkward tension between being a billionaire philanthropist and striving for an open society. But first... I know we have to carry on with the rest of the episode, but I just want to look into Heinz. On Wikipedia, it says country, United Kingdom slash United States. Close that tab. You can go back to it later. Ask mm. me who's had a good week. Who's had a good week? Uh, I'm giving good week to King Philippe of Belgium. And that is because of a pretty striking letter that the king wrote last week to the president of the Democratic Republic of Congo, Felix Tshisekedi. Belgium, as you no doubt know, is the former colonial power in DR Congo. And the king was writing to the Congolese president to mark 60 years of independence. What was so surprising about the letter? Well, Philippe had this to say about what happened under colonialism. He wrote, Our history is made up of common achievements, but it has also known painful periods. Under the Congo Free State, acts of violence and cruelty were committed, which still weigh upon our collective memory. I want to express my profound regret for these past injuries, the pain of which is kept alive today by discrimination that is still too present in our societies. Now, maybe it doesn't sound particularly shocking to have someone acknowledge that terrible things happened under colonial rule, 
But this was actually a really big moment because no member of the royal family has ever publicly acknowledged the unspeakably awful things that were done under Philippe's ancestor, King Leopold II. The really massive chunk of Central Africa that is today covered by DR Congo, that land was under Belgian colonial rule for about eight decades. And for the first two of those decades, this land was in the personal possession of King Leopold. It was called the Congo Free State, and it is infamous today for its cruelty, even within the context of all of the other awful stuff that European colonial powers did in general. Under Leopold, millions of Congolese people were worked to death. People's limbs were cut off if they couldn't meet the production quotas for things like rubber and ivory. It was actually so cruel that the other European colonial powers eventually stepped in in 1908 and said that Leopold couldn't be allowed to carry on like this. And the Belgian state eventually took it off his hands. Wow, if you have to behave so badly for the other colonial powers to step in, then things must have got pretty bad. Yeah, quite grim. So are people seeing this as like a proper apology or did it leave something to be desired? Uh, it was more an expression of profound regret than a... He didn't oh, say the yes word. Yeah, one of those. So no, uh, it did stop short of being a full apology. But it is being seen in Kinshasa and in Brussels as a kind of first step towards some kind of proper accountability. And it's definitely a lot better than what Philippe's brother, Prince Laurent, said a few weeks ago. He told a newspaper that, you know, Leopold never even set foot in Congo. It was really the people working on the ground that did all the terrible things. Which, uh, maybe, but Leopold certainly did profit from these terrible things very, very handsomely. Um, But this intervention from the king, it comes at a time when a bunch of other things are happening in Belgium that suggest that the country is finally starting to deal with this part of its history. So after King Philippe wrote this letter, Belgium's Prime Minister, Sophie Wilmers, followed it up with another letter saying that it was time for the country to look its past in the face. Statues of Leopold have been coming down around the country following the Black Lives Matter protests. There's going to be a parliamentary commission in Belgium to look at the colonial past. And there's also this really big drive around teaching this history in schools, which is really important because for decades, Belgians got taught that colonialism, you know, helped to bring civilization to Africa. And it was this real force for progress, apparently. Well, it's definitely better progress than happened this week in the Netherlands. What happened this week in the Netherlands? Uh, There was a debate in Parliament about whether to apologise for the country's history of slavery. And the Prime Minister, Mark Ritter, said that apologies form a risk that society will further polarise. Or does it create a risk that he's going to have to pay reparations for stuff? Yeah, maybe that. Um, But I mean, it does tie into my experience with the fact that Dutch people are really bad at (laughs) apologising. Are you speaking about personal experience here? Yeah, with like, I've had to explain to quite a few Dutch people that you are able to say sorry if it wasn't explicitly like a deliberate fault of your own that you can apologize for something that happened because of a system you were part of we should make a special episode about like the culture of apologies across europe we should and actually funnily enough dutch people think that belgians apologize way too much as well that they like are sorry for just being in a room interesting well that's definitely true of the brits as well then i mean we apologize when other people bump into us in the street yeah which is really nice anyway um To me, it sounds like Belgium is probably doing a bit more than other European countries coming out of the Black Lives Matter protests. I don't know if you feel that way. But in the UK, at least, it doesn't really feel like that much has changed off the back of the protest. No. And in France, neither. No, that's true. In the UK, though, 
uh, well, not really in the UK, in America, the Duke and Duchess of Sussex, Harry and Meghan, they were on a live stream this week and said that the British Commonwealth must acknowledge their past, mm. even if it is uncomfortable. So there is a part of the British royal family who are thinking about it, but they are the part that have fled to Los Angeles so I totally forgotten about Harry and Meghan had you as soon as they leave the continent you're just like they're dead to me no just that some other stuff has been going on that's true it's a real blast from the past thinking about Harry and Meghan leaving remember when that was the biggest story around I know Uh, it's also because you've been really focused on the Belgian royal family this is the second time (laughs) the Belgian royal family have appeared in Good Week Bad Week this month I just love those Belgian royals Um, but anyway yeah I think it is good to see some reassessment being done in Belgium. I've been plugging this episode a lot lately, but if you're interested in the legacies of European colonialism in Africa, a great episode of ours to check out is the one that we released uh, at the beginning of this year with the Kenyan writer Patrick Githaro, who is just brilliant and so eloquent in talking about this stuff. The episode is called Your Africa, and it's well worth checking out. Who has had a bad week, Dominic? It's been a bad week for the Russian TV channel RT formerly known as Russia Today, after they were banned in Latvia. Seven RT channels were taken off the air because the Latvia National Electronic Mass Media Council believes that RT is effectively controlled by an individual who is on the EU sanctions list. I say effectively controlled because officially... He doesn't run RT. RT is officially run by someone called Margarita Simonian, who responded to this ruling rather snarkily on Twitter by saying, Latvian intelligence believes that Dmitry Kisilov is in charge of RT. We can fear nothing with that sort of intelligence. Does this guy actually work for RT, though? This Dmitry chap? Well, officially he doesn't. No, he is, however, the head of the government-owned news agency, Rosaya Segodnia, which confusingly means Russia Today, which was ah. the previous name of RT. Um, but still, on paper, it's not officially the parent company of RT. Before he was head of this agency, he was a TV anchor, and still is, in fact, and perhaps the most powerful TV anchor in the whole of Russia. And he was named by The Economist in 2014 as being Russia's chief propagandist. Mm. He was added to the EU sanction list in 2014 during Russia's annexation of Crimea for his role in the Russian government's propaganda campaign around Ukraine. RT is perceived by many as being a propaganda tool for the Russian government. And there is no question that it is very Kremlin friendly. Whilst the channel may not cause too much consternation in a country like Britain, where it has received some criticism from Ofcom, the British broadcasting regulator, but is allowed to continue broadcasting. In Latvia, Lithuania and Estonia, the general threat from Russia is always a bit more present for obvious historical and geographical reasons. And therefore, the TV channel seems to sit a bit higher up the to-do list of politicians and media regulators. I read that um, it mostly targets the sort of Russian-speaking minorities in this part of the world, right? Yeah, and there's quite a big Russian ethnic community in Latvia and officials feel that they're being swayed by this very pro-Russian TV channel. I'm not sure whether by taking it off air, these people will have no influence from Russian information. Um, YouTube is still a thing and and social media is a very good way of spreading these stories. But it's a step and something that they clearly think is worth doing. That Dimitri guy, 
Is it normal for journalists to be on the EU sanctions list? What's the deal with that? No, it's pretty unusual, actually. Um, so back in 2014, when he was added to this EU sanctions list, it was quite surprising. But when you're the head of a perceived propaganda outlet, then you can kind of understand, I think, why he was placed on that list. He actually appealed against the sanctions, but um, that was rejected in 2017. The propaganda around Crimea was the official reason for his sanctioning, but there are plenty of other reasons to criticise this man who, for example, has a particularly horrible history of homophobic diatribes, such as when he said that gay people killed in car accidents should have their hearts buried or burned so that they wouldn't be used for emergency organ transplants as they are unfit for prolonging anybody's life. Oh, wow. That gives you a little taste of his style. And Latvia decided that they have strong enough evidence to suggest that Kislyov is in fact calling the shots at RT, even if that is not officially acknowledged by anyone. Um, Latvia have called on other countries in the EU to follow suit and ban the TV channels. And they are maybe going to get some support. Lithuania are currently mulling a ban as well, following a recent clarification from the European Commission that suggested that people sanctioned by the EU, like Dimitri, should also have their businesses blacklisted. The Lithuanian foreign minister put out a statement on the matter, pointing out that uh, Latvia got there first with the ban, but it's not a race. Um, He said the key thing is to make the right decision, and I don't think it will take long for us. Lithuania basically want to make sure that they have a strong enough case that will stand up in court showing that Kislyov is actually effectively in charge of RT. What's your take, Katie, as a journalist on RT? I find it's quite a tricky one to unpick. It is tricky because, you know, Europe is supposed to be the home of really good democratic values. And on principle, I do not think it is bad for television stations that are critical of the governments of the countries that are hosting them. I, I feel uncomfortable with the idea of shutting them down. But when you start asking yourself, like, what is the strategic point of that TV station existing? If it is about sowing propaganda that to some extent is aimed at sowing division within Europe, uh, it becomes a little bit more problematic. Um, but yeah, it's been interesting. I've been following RT in France Uh, for a long time because during the election when Macron got elected they were accused of being sort of lying propaganda and uh, he actually passed an anti-fake news law just after he got elected which was widely seen as a move against RT and Sputnik this other Russian outlet so yeah I have mixed opinions they do do some good reporting Um, they were praised for example in America for their reporting around the Occupy movement Um, obviously that's something that uh, helps the Russian cause because it's like a bit anti-establishment and they actually were even nominated for an international Emmy for that reporting but some journalists have resigned from RT particularly in America after saying they were being fed pro-Kremlin lines Mm, particularly on Syria I guess yeah And interesting sidebar, RT was actually forced to register as a foreign agent in America a few years ago under a law that was originally designed to work against Nazi propaganda during World War II. So, yeah, it's a tricky one. And I got actually caught in a bit of a rabbit hole of stories about RT and its predecessor, Russia Today. There's some really interesting articles in the New York Times magazine from a few years ago outlining how Russia used their media outlets as a very powerful weapon of information. And, yeah, 
it points out that not everything they put out is bad. And yeah, some say that we shouldn't focus on it too much. It creates hysteria and diversion from more important methods of disinformation from Russia. But uh, I'll post these articles and you can all have a think about it because I'm undecided. Lots of new people started supporting the podcast this week, for which we are tremendously grateful. These lovely people are Maribel Rasmine. I hope that's pronounced right, Maribel. It almost definitely isn't. Uh, Abby, Justin Vakinas, and Damien Scarlett. You guys are keeping this podcast alive, so thank you very, very much. Yeah, thank you to those four for supporting us this week. And if anyone else is like on the fence thinking, oh, maybe this is the week um, when I'll support the Europeans on Patreon, then go ahead, do it. We'll be so happy. Head to patreon.com forward slash Europeans podcast and give as little as $2 a month to help this podcast keep going. George Soros. Do we say Soros or Soros? I think we can say Soros. We're going to be terrible English people and say Soros. Sorry, Hungarian listeners. Um, But anyway, yeah, George Soros was someone that came into my work life quite a lot last year because I was working on this project around like fake news and internet rumors. And it is frankly astonishing how often he comes up on the fringes of the internet in terms of like people suggesting there's like shadowy forces behind whatever it is. Yeah, it's rather depressing, isn't it? Yeah. Just to give you a couple of examples, there was recently this uh, claim, I think mostly on the far right, that he was funding the Black Lives Matter protests. Um, And there were people claiming that he and Bill Gates want to microchip people being tested for coronavirus. He's just this really kind of versatile bogeyman figure which I find really fascinating. He pops up in all kinds of theories. Um, but he's also, of course, many other things besides. He is a hugely successful investor, prolific philanthropist, a Holocaust survivor, a speaker of Esperanto, an enemy of Hungarian Prime Minister Viktor Orban. He is just a fascinating character, which is why it makes sense that Emily has written a book about him. Emily Tamkin, she is the US editor of The New Statesman. She's written for years about Soros for various media, including BuzzFeed and Foreign Policy. And she's on the line right now. Before I read your book, I didn't really know that much about George Soros's early life, which is an absolutely fascinating story. Um, so the Soroses were a Jewish family in Hungary who survived the Holocaust by pretending to be Christians. To what extent do you think those early experiences shaped the man that George Soros became? Oh, I think it was a I think it was a formative experience um, for three reasons. The first is that his father, Tivadar Soros, who was a very influential figure on his life, um, really took control of this traumatic, tragic situation. It wasn't just that they were hiding out. He found documents, both forged and borrowed, with which he and his family and friends and friends of friends could hide out as Christians. And what George Soros recalls is that his father was just a master of of survival and also of recognizing that sometimes the rules of the game are unfair and therefore need to be changed. Um, he also tells the story, this is also about the father, you know, they were hiding out as Christians and went to buy cigarettes and these Jewish people, you know, asked to buy them from Father Soros and he gave them to them. And George Soros was like, they're not supposed to have that. That was so dangerous for us. Why did we do that? And he said that the reason was that he didn't want them to think that all Christians were bad. And when I first heard the story, I was like, oh, he wants to give them hope in Christians. And then I asked um, George Soros about it. And he said that the point was was that he didn't want um, these Jewish people to hate other Christians. So from a very early age, he appreciates 
the threat that nationalism and this kind of ethnic or racial hatred can play in a society and how detrimental it is to uh, an open society. The second thing is that he, I think that his relationship to Jewishness, which is now the subject of some controversy or fascination, or people will say, oh, he's not really Jewish. I think that his understanding of Jewishness comes from being persecuted because he was Jewish at this young age. And so for him, it's it was less about being tied to a state or one group of people and more about empathizing or trying to help those who get caught under the wheel and are persecuted at any given point. A lot of the conspiracy theories that are attached to him are around his Jewishness. Do you think that's one of the main reasons why he's become such a magnet for conspiracy theories? Or do you think there are other aspects to it too? I think there are other aspects to it, but I don't think that you can separate out the fact that he's Jewish from those other aspects for two reasons. The first is that I believe that part of the reason that the conspiracy theories are so effective is that people have prejudices against Jewish people, right? So if I say to you, oh... Um, this New York-based man of finance is flooding the country with immigrants. I never said the word Jewish, but you, I mean, maybe not you, but, but a person who's grown up in a particular society and has been conditioned to hear things in a certain way will think, ah, yes, a Jew. So it makes it effective for that reason. The second is that um, because his sense of Jewishness, as I was saying, is tied more to this, you know, universal human rights and is not linked up with the state of Israel, there are some people who can say, I, I don't think they shouldn't say this, but they feel comfortable saying, well, he's not really Jewish. There's that component of it as well, where his um, his particular Jewish identity is sort of weaponized against him to justify the anti-Semitic conspiracy theories. It is really intriguing just how often he crops up as his kind of international bogeyman figure. Um, it did strike me reading the book, like he's done so much to support non-government groups in the past who are fighting against authoritarian governments often. So like anti-apartheid activists, Solidarity in Poland, Charter 77 in Czechoslovakia. Mm-hmm. I mean, is, is that the other big reason, I guess, why he still gets accused of kind of uh, pulling the strings behind the scenes? I think this is a huge part of it, because what you're doing when you're blaming Soros is you are taking the agency from the group that's protesting and from the group the individual, the group, the NGO, the whatever, that's fighting to make their society freer and more inclusive. And you're saying it's not really them, it's Soros, right? So instead of actually dealing with the concerns of the people in your society who are dissenting or pushing or whatever, you're blaming this guy. And you're doing it without elevating the NGO or the dissidents or the political opposition. Instead, you're just vilifying this one person who is maybe supportive of them, but who who is himself not in the group doing the, the, the groundwork, if you will. So the name of his philanthropic foundation is the Open Society Foundation, which is named after a book that was written by his tutor, Karl Popper, whom he studied with in London. Could you give us a brief outline of what an open society is and how it has defined his giving? Of course. So this is a very simplified version. If there's any like Karl Popper or diehards who are tuning into this podcast, I apologize. Oh no, that's <laughs> such a big constituency among our listeners. You never, you never know. Um, but basically, the idea is that none of us will ever really understand or know anything perfectly, and therefore. The best society is one in which rather than ascribing to any one ideology, we all come together and we debate and we discuss and together we work toward a better, more perfect understanding. 
It's about participating in the public space. We are all invited to the discussion. A closed society is one in which we say, aha, yes, this is the philosophy and we all go by this. And these are the people who are allowed to dictate what we think and what we do. And it's a more exclusionary society. And in his own country of birth, Hungary, um, there is currently a government and a leader who really don't fit into this image of the open society. Do you think Soros has kind of failed with his goals as he's nearing the end of his life and his career? It's kind of quite a sad state of affairs in his country of birth. This is something that I thought about a lot. Um, Actually, the conclusion of the book is set partly in the last graduation of Central European University in Budapest, which he founded in the early 90s. It is now getting has been pushed out largely of Hungary by the Orban government. And it was like, how do you look at this and not say that it was all like, it was all for what? But I I think that rather than looking at where we are right now, we have to look at all of the different people who received money from open society over the years, right? All of the students who never would have been able to go to the universities that they did, including Orban, who went to Oxford on a Soros scholarship, Um, you know, all of the debating societies, all of the, you know, the fact that he provided light and water to Sarajevo during the war, and the fact that he put on like literary contests during the war there as well, so that people would still feel human. I personally don't think it's fair to say, well, sorry, the last 40 years of your work, it's, it's all a wash. Some of those people are now pushing for, you know, taxation of billionaires and corporations and a more equitable distribution of wealth and power. And I think that that is part of his legacy as well. And I guess some people would argue that his like huge political donations across many different countries feels a little bit, I, I don't know, icky. Did you grapple with that idea of whether the kind of incredible influence of someone so rich over so many different political systems in so many different countries, it could be uncomfortable. I did. Um, the chapter seven is actually called The Elections of 2004. And I look at the, the US election and the election in Georgia. And basically, in the US case, Soros had previously pushed to have campaign finance reform to limit big money in politics. But then all of a sudden, George W. Bush is up for re-election, and he pours all of this money into get out the vote efforts to try to defeat George W. Bush. And I think even more so than the United States, you know, he is an extremely wealthy person going into into some countries that are themselves not not wealthy. And people do say that they are, they're so impressed that he put all of this um, power and control and trust in the hands of local intellectual leaders. But it was still him picking who those people were and empowering them. So that's something that I grappled with as well. He's most well known in the UK for being the man who made billions betting against the British pound and forcing the UK to withdraw from the European exchange rate mechanism. Was he really the man who broke the Bank of England? And how much of that is a myth? And did he get most of his wealth from that specific event? I mean, he made a tremendous amount of money from that. But he before and after was a tremendously successful hedge funder and speculator. So I think I mean, he's not wealthy simply because of that. What that one event did in his telling, and I I think this is fair, is that it increased his profile both within the world of finance, but also within the world of politics and philanthropy. And so all of a sudden, he's a person who's being listened to about world affairs because of this breaking of the bank. You must have spent quite a lot of time while writing this book hanging out in like weird corners of the internet. Um, (laughs) what, What was like the weirdest George Soros conspiracy theory that popped up? Well, the weirdest George Soros conspiracy theory actually came out after I wrote the book where a gentleman who's running for Congress in Florida 
said that Beyonce was a deep state agent who was paid for by Soros. <laughs> As a big Beyonce fan, I do resent that that didn't happen while I was writing the book. I would have loved to <laughs> loved to have included that. Um, in many, I mean, not the Beyonce example, but in many cases, there is not a grain of truth, but a a point of origin. In the early 2000s, you had Dennis Hastert, who was at the time Speaker of the House, say that Soros was smuggling drugs in. Well, Soros was not smuggling drugs in. Obviously, that's a ridiculous, that's just a completely ludicrous claim. But he was, since the late 90s, pushing for criminal justice reform and pushing to have drug addiction seen as more of a medical issue and not a criminal one. So you can see kind of if you like squint your eyes and like cock your head where it was coming from and how it turned into something nefarious and conspiratorial. Emily's book, The Influence of Soros, is out now. came out on Tuesday, actually. Uh, and it's a fascinating and really measured look at something that generates quite a lot of hysteria. So I found it, yeah, really refreshing. And in fact, I'm going to grab that as my isolation inspiration of the week. Go read Emily's book. That's cheating. Is it? The thing is, I haven't, I've had a really uncultured week. And the only other culture I've been consuming is, um, have you seen that Netflix show called Floor is Lava? No. It's that show for families about like trying to get across an obstacle course and the floor is like this sort of molten lava. Don't fall in the lava! It's not really up to the standards of the usual highbrow recommendations of this podcast, but it's really what I needed this week. That's fine. You don't need to feel guilty about that. I have a very highbrow recommendation to balance things out. Oh, thank God. And perhaps it's a bit of a niche thing for people who like string music like me. But um, I saw an amazing video this week from a violinist, Malin Broman, who's Swedish and the musical director of the Swedish Radio Symphony Orchestra. She put out a video of Mendelssohn's Octet, which is one of my favorite pieces of music written for eight string players, which is essentially two string quartets put together violins, violas, cellos. And in this video, she is playing all of the instruments. Oh, cool. Now, it's kind of normal for violinists to be able to kind of play the viola and vice versa. But seeing a violinist who's also able to play the cello and pretty well was totally mind-blowing for me. Um, it's also a great way of performing ensemble music without risking passing on an evil virus to each other. Oh, Yeah. It's a really fun video. Each version of her eight selves has a different outfit and different hairstyle. She's really <laughs> cool. Um, I'll probably get complaints for talking too much about classical music, but it made me smile. Um, and there's some little bonus comedy at the end of the video. So check out the link in the show notes. And then go and watch Flora's Lava because it's a really good show. So I almost chose the amazing story of the Spanish counsellor who took a shower during a live streamed council meeting uh, without realising that his camera was still on. But oh, God. How was that a happy ending? Well, exactly. I mean, it's funny, but it made me deeply sad actually when I read about it properly. So I had to search for some happier news and I found a cheering story in Paris actually where 
A jazz club has been performing five-minute jazz performances for individual audience members at La Gare Jazz Club, a former railway station in the north of the city. Hmm, I don't know it. According to The Guardian, by the end of the month, they will have performed 3,000 mini performances. Couples and housemates are allowed to attend together, but everyone else goes in alone. And actually, I think maybe I'd prefer that. Not that I'm antisocial or anything, but just for the novelty of it. Whilst it's proving very difficult for artists to perform anything safely and packed jazz venues are definitely out of the question, it was very cheering to hear that this initiative exists and seems very popular with socially distant cues spotted around the block. You should go, Katie. I really like this idea. I like the idea of like kind of personal entertainment. It's a bit like receiving a lap dance, but not problematic. (laughs) (laughs) Am I allowed to say that? Sure. Uh, I actually found out this week I'm going to be performing again oh, at the beginning of August. I can't quite believe it. Very um, exciting. In a huge church with only two singers and a few instrumentalists. But um, it's very exciting and scary. Where can people catch you? Uh, it's the Chachten Festival, which is the Canal Festival at the Zauderkirk, which is the church that has the bells <gasps> that interrupt this podcast all the time so for the first time i'm actually performing within that church so maybe we'll become friends or maybe you could go up and do some sabotage while you're in there good idea if i survive the train journey today then we will be back next week and it will i'm afraid to say be our last episode before we take a little break for the summer holiday seeing as we didn't take an easter break um katie who does a lot of editing for this show really needs a break right now don't you <laughs> are you saying that because of how um grouchy i've been for the last few weeks maybe (laughs) i do need a holiday it's time it's time to go and sit in the sunshine and read a book one more episode i am counting down the days no i'm not i'm gonna miss everyone over the summer obviously um but there will be i think some stuff coming on our feed over the summer but in the meantime you can catch us on all of the social media platforms we're on twitter at europeans pod Instagram at Europeans Podcast, Facebook, if you just type in the Europeans Podcast, you'll find us. And you can email us one on one communication, just like that Parisian jazz place, with there at hello at Europeanspodcast.com. Kind of like lap dancing, but not. <laughs> I regret that comment. We'll see you next week, everyone. Bye. Bye. <laughs> <laughs>